Well, welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and happy Friday. I'm here in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And in studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Great to have you back, Adrian. It's good to be back at the controls. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Adrian has uh, just recently returned from a very interesting foray in Egypt, reaching out with the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, correct? Yeah, it was uh, quite an adventure. Well, tell yeah. us a little bit about it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> I guess we can do a little synopsis. Uh, yeah, the, so I was uh, first, I started off at, uh, at a performing arts festival. <clears throat> this was put on by a cl- conglomeration of about 220 Egyptian churches, um, all of which uh, were uh, inviting a lot of volunteers to come out and, and really just try to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. So this festival brings in all kinds of athletic-type sports activities, about 20 tents, and all these tents have uh, a different type of show in them. So you can have one tent was all artistry of, of like painting, and another one was like a cinema. Uh, I was in the main tent where we had myself and another performer who's a, a professional clown who was trained by the original creator of Ronald McDonald. Wow. <clears throat> Phenomenal act. He's from Puerto Rico. His name is Chaggy. So uh, he's just great for the kids. And, uh, and they have stunt bike guys who are doing like motorcycle jumps, uh, skateboard part. It's a massive zip lines. First day, we had about 6,000 Egyptians come out. Oh, my gosh. That's Second great. day, we had over 12,000 Egyptians come out, which was on a Friday, which is sort of their Sunday. So that's where everyone has the day off. And then Saturday, we had another 6,000. And the whole park, uh, all these churches bus their friends, their guests, those who they've invited out. So they're co- sort of a captive audience throughout the day because the buses don't leave until the evening. It's about an hour and a half outside of Cairo. Mm-hmm. And in the evening, they have this huge stadium that's just packed with worship and speakers and testimonials. And again, a very thorough gospel presentation. All the performers, all the artists have either a testimony or some sort of gospel presentation that they do. And so it's really just a great way to, uh, Luis Palau's ministry was the one who sort of uh, spearheaded the model right? using right. this festival entertainment arts way of doing outreach. You put on these huge festivals and people come out for the entertainment, they can kind of pick and choose, it's kind of like a fair, oh I want to go see this show, now I'm going to go see this show, and each one adds sort of an interesting dynamic to the whole vision for the whole thing. And uh, of course there are people from other faiths that will attend. Uh, so it's it's allowed to be had because it's a Christian festival for Christians. You know, they compose about 15% of the population. But nobody's checking IDs at the door. <laughs> no, it's not China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in China, I, you know, I went to the international church service, and they were checking passports at the door, and only foreigners could go. So <laughs> it's not that bad, but uh, it's a great model. And then I stayed for an extended, I extended my trip, to uh, be able to work on some other things and some little downtime. I've always wanted to go to the Red Sea, and so I was able to do that. Uh, Of course, with the chaos that occurred, many of our events were canceled, but I was able to share with uh, some Sudanese refugees. We did an event for them, and I was able to spend some quality time with a a young Egyptian illusionist who's uh, working on going into full-time ministry, but at the moment he's uh, working with another mission that I've worked with for about, about 10 years now. 
And so I was able to spend some really good quality time with him on developing his testimony, his gospel presentation, gave him a bunch of props. And so it was a really, really fruitful time, uh, very energizing for me uh, in my walk and in my getting sort of back on the mission field after COVID and kids. (laughs) (laughs) One, two, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, wonderful. And uh, again, communicating the gospel in that environment in Egypt, especially with what's going on there, was it fairly tense? There, there was times where it felt a little bit tense, especially when we were outside of the festival doing events, uh, because now you're in the general population. But I didn't get to experience much of that because most of our events were canceled. Like, for example, the day we were supposed to go to Alexandria, <clears throat> a, an officer decided to gun down two Israeli tourists as well as his Egyptian right. tour guide. So that that was immediately canceled because our host was like, well, they're gunning down anybody. And now they've declared, you know, jihad on <laughs> on foreigners as well so we don't think it's a good idea to have a bunch of foreigners come and do an event in this area so uh, unfortunately that was the case but you know I, it didn't feel intense though when we were out and um, you know I've done this sort of work for so many years that you kind of you kind of learn how to develop <clears throat> a a level of of way of of breaking down the walls because most people are really interested in spiritual things and if you if you approach it in a way where you develop a common ground with your audience before you start you know saying things that are going to go against what they believe and what they believe passionately right you have to sort of earn that and yeah. there's a way to do that 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 i've learned over the years that's really effective and so most of the time with the exception of a few rabble rousers in the audience uh, by and large most people are very receptive to hearing and they'll come up to me and make it very clear to me that I don't agree with what you said, but I really appreciate that you're here yeah. and that you said it. Yeah, and uh, you had the opportunity to really uh, impact uh, some people from the Sudan, did you not? Yeah, the Sudanese refugee event was great. We had a f- packed house. It was put on by the Anglican Church, which ran the mission, the, the refugee center. So they were a captive audience since about April, middle of April. Uh, there, it's, there's major civil war in Sudan. Sudan's just south of Egypt, so the safest place to go is go north. Right. <laughs> and so we have a ton, not just uh, refugees from Sudan, but the audience had a lot of mixed other countries, a lot of people from, uh, gosh, I can't, there's, there's some of the countries are escaping me. Um, but um, the, the audience was a pretty mixed group, and some of them have uh, lost a lot of family. Many of the kids saw their neighbors, their parents, their fathers, their friends ch- killed in front of them because of the civil war. Mm. So very, very sad situation. Uh, one of the families where I did get to meet a dad because it was I, sadly mostly women and children. The men are either back fighting or deceased right. because of the civil war. But the one family I was able to chat with, he was. He said it was a normal day. We had no warning. There was no tensions rising. It was just mommy's making breakfast and next thing you know we're running for our lives oh gosh uh, it was yeah it's very unbelievable just sad for them but um he said i can't believe you would leave your family and come here and do this and he just said i you know i just very i don't understand that mm. and uh he says just to give us a little smile that, that we need oh gosh and so that was really kind of hard to hear but at the same time uh you know, challenging and a good reminder that we are to be light and salt. Right, right, and not to underestimate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Well, fantastic. Well, I'm glad you got mm-hmm. back in one piece. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just going to really be praying that there's going to be tremendous fruit that uh, comes out. There's a lot of lives touched in that neck of the woods. Mm. So, Indeed. Yep. So back to the program. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, since you're all here, <laughs> uh, this is a reason for hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where our Bible answer guys here in studio will take your questions about the Christian faith, about uh, passages that you want clarity on, or perhaps there's a, an issue that you want uh, to know what God's Word has to say on how to address those issues. So I'd encourage you to, um, to, to join us in the chat. And the way you can ask your questions, there's multiple ways you can do so. First, you can just go on social media. We're live streaming to Facebook simultaneously and uh, to YouTube. So you can go to Facebook.com and look for us. It's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Or you can just use the link there that's on the screen, facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson. And just join the live stream if you have a Facebook account, and you can use the chat section to leave your questions. You can also do the same thing on YouTube. So if you don't have a Facebook account, but you want to ask a question, and you want to do so on a social media platform, go to YouTube, and just search for A Reason for Hope. Our handle is at A Reason for Hope 546. So if you go to youtube.com forward slash, for those of you listening on the radio, just type in A Reason for Hope. That's at A Reason for Hope 546, and you can do the same thing. You can watch the live stream, leave your questions. Again, any question can be asked as long as it's sincere from the heart and you genuinely want to know what God's Word has to say, what the Christian worldview, how it would address specific issues, whether it be social or uh, spiritual issues, uh, feel free to ask those questions. And of course, if you don't want to be involved or put your question on a social media platform, we also have a website. You can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, click the Watch Live tab, and you can catch us there as well. Um, <clears throat> that's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. Click the Watch Live tab, and you can leave your questions. It's got a nice little chat box. And you can even make a prayer request. There's a little button that says uh, Prayer Request, so you can ask us, and we'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. And uh, uh, So take advantage of that if you can. Now, if you want to look at our archives and you don't really want to be involved in social media, but you want to watch past programs, and see what kinds of questions people have asked. We archive them on Rumble, and so if you are one of those anti-YouTube folks or want to avoid going there and would prefer to see the archives in Rumble, you can do so. We categorize them by the questions, the three top questions asked on that program, so you can do that. And uh, of course, last but not least, uh, as far as asking your questions, uh, you can also email them to us. If you prefer to be more discreet, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And I also wanted to point out that we have an app. So if you want to download our app, if you're a part of our community, you can go to the uh, the Apple or Google Play Store and just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you'll see that little red icon with the white dove. You can download that, and you can not only keep track of uh, current events, it's got a nifty digital Bible where you can leave notes, uh, choose different translations, and so on. And uh, it's got you can ch- create chat groups, and it's really great. We also have... Um, we live stream to the Roku, all Roku and Amazon Fire products, so take advantage of those. And be sure to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. His handle is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. So that all being said, we're going to take a moment to pray and get to your questions. I think we'll have a little little update on what's going on. Oh, a little one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things are changing by the hour yeah. uh, in the world. and uh, So let's just pray for our time today and uh, get to your questions. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's do it. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to uh, not only uh, take a look at what's going on in the world around us, but to see it from your point of view because of the inspiration uh, of your word. I ask, Father, that in the name of Jesus, you would uh, speak uh, words of hope, words of life, words of grace, and words of truth to people. I pray, Father, that we would uh, not uh, be undiscerning people, but people who are able to uh, sift out the difference between that which is true and maybe even that which is sort of true, but is omitting certain things, uh, especially in, in this world around us. We pray together as a reason for our family, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the Israeli people. We pray, Father, that uh, both uh, Jews and Palestinians in this neck of the woods would come to know your son as their personal savior and see the war within them come to an end because they've come to peace with you but uh, lord uh, you see what's going on uh, you see uh, the uh, the situation that israel is in you tell us to pray for the sons and daughters of abraham isaac and jacob mm. and so we do we agree before you that you would protect them preserve them and uh, give their leaders great wisdom on the monumental decisions uh, that they may find themselves making in a very short amount of time. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, little prophecy update uh, for you all. Uh, the big news uh, that uh, broke today was that uh, Hamas released two Americans that they were holding hostage in the terror tunnels underneath uh, Gaza City. Uh, Judith and Natalie Rannan were released. They are from Chicago. They were visiting Judith's mother, in Kibbutz Nahal Oz when uh, Hamas invaded on October 7th. Uh, they are uh, now in Israel and are apparently making a transition to uh, go home and meet their families. So uh, when that happened, uh, the uh, powers that be, uh, the spinmeisters started to say, oh, see, Hamas is acting in a humanitarian sense. Well, we really have to keep this particular gesture in proper perspective. First of all, we see two uh, hostages being released. That still leaves 201 under Hamas's control, uh, hidden in terror tunnels and various sites inside Gaza City. Uh, I loved what uh, Jonathan Schanzer said about this. If you're arguing that Hamas is a rational actor because it released two hostages, let me remind you that Hamas slaughtered 1,400 people in cold blood in one day, and there are 201 hostages remaining. Now is not the time to try and launder the image of this terror group. Well, uh, I would certainly agree with that assessment, but laundering the image of this terror group uh, seems to be a uh, growing industry, if you will. Uh, there was another uh, major uh, news report that broke that uh, Israel had destroyed a uh, historic uh, Orthodox church that was located there in, uh, in Gaza, uh, and uh, that uh, this was an atrocity and a horrible act, and uh, that uh, the church was almost 2,000 years old. Mm. Well, saying any church in Gaza, especially of the style of architecture that we see it built from, was 2,000 years old, uh, should have probably not gotten by the fact checkers to begin with. But imagine our shock and our surprise when uh, we discovered today that this very same church that they said the Israelis blew up uh, is still standing. Uh, although the BBC and uh, New York Times yesterday said Israel destroyed the Greek Orthodox Church of St. 
porphyrous in Gaza. Uh, there are pictures of the church that are running today, and it is uh, completely intact and no worse the for the wear. Uh, you know, my comment on our Twitter site was, I tend to rely on the George Costanza School of Analysis whenever uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, FNC, or the Alphabet Networks report on Israel. I tend to read it and believe the opposite is the case. And I don't think you go too far wrong in that capacity. As far as uh, where the war is right now, a couple things that are happening, at least at this moment. Right now, the main battle, I believe, is for the hearts and minds of people. And as such, propaganda spin is the order of the day. So much so that a hospital in Galilee banned the BBC from coming in and doing a story on the people being treated at this hospital because they were so angry with its uh, coverage of the war against Hamas. Now, why was the BBC held out in, uh, in uh, such an example of, uh, of a, uh, an expression of anger? Well, among other things, BBC editorial has refused to refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization. They will refer to them as fighters, but not terrorists. Uh, even though the British government lists Hamas as a terrorist organization, the BBC does not. Uh, again, uh, when uh, the uh, stray rocket hit the parking lot of the hotel in Gaza on Tuesday, the BBC quickly attributed the attack to Israel and did not correct themselves until long after uh, there was no doubt that Israel was not the one who attacked. In fact, when they did issue a correction, it was published in the back of the newspaper on their corrections and clarifications page with simply the statement that the report was not true. Uh, President Yitzhak Herzog, in an interview with the Daily Mail this week, slammed the BBC's coverage of Operation Swords of Iron. Also noticed its atrocious refusal to brand Hamas as a terrorist group. Uh, and uh, again, uh, BBC has gotten even deeper. Uh, a number of uh, journalists that work for BBC's Arabic service went online with uh, pro-Hamas posts uh, early on after the war first broke. There have been no reprimands. There's an investigation going on. Additionally, the Spanish language branch of the BBC released a program claiming, quote, Jewish wealth and influence in the United States is the reason for Israel's American support. Uh, BBC News Mundo presenter Gonzalo Cañada said that Israel is seen as an American enclave in the Middle East. So uh, once again, an awful lot of propaganda is going on here. Uh, we uh, see even members of the House of Representatives making statements that Israel blew up a hospital in Gaza and 500 people died. Nothing could be further from the truth. This rocket landed and exploded uh, in a parking lot next to the hospital. We don't know how many people were actually killed or injured, but it certainly wasn't 500. And certainly there weren't hundreds killed in the alleged uh, bombing of the Greek Orthodox Church earlier today, despite what you might read in the media. So uh, that's really what's going on right now. But a uh, very interesting uh, story, and this is, I think, uh, 
probably uh, the, the, uh, the story that we really need to focus in on for the purposes of prayer and really even understanding what's going on in this region. It comes on uh, the All Israel News site. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg has put this up. Uh, and uh, essentially the headline says this, preemptive strike. Will Israel choose this moment to attack Iran's nuclear facilities and assassinate its leaders? Wow. Well, that is definitely an eye-catching headline. Uh, Netanyahu likely discussed with Biden the case for obliterating Tehran, uh, the Tehran terror threat, once and for all. Uh, Again, Joel writes uh, in his uh, op-ed at All Israel News, everyone in Israel is waiting for the ground invasion of the northern Gaza to begin. Why hasn't it started already? We've talked a little bit about that this week on this program. Some of the media are speculating that Benjamin Netanyahu has just blinked and isn't serious about eradicating the Hamas terrorist organization. That's not it. One obvious reason for the delay, Israel wants all Palestinian civilians in the northern half of Gaza to move south out of the way of the coming IDF invasion. Another, Netanyahu has been welcoming major world leaders in recent days, including U.S. President Joe Biden, the German Chancellor and British Prime Minister. Time is needed to brief these and other leaders on the atrocities Hamas has committed and Iran's involvement in the the, uh, attacks. Another, the IDF is presently mobilizing more than 360,000 reservists, positioning them on the Gaza and Lebanon borders and in the West Bank. It takes time to get all the troops, tanks, and other materiel into position to get everyone ready to fight. But then he says, I believe there's another reason, the most important of all. On Tuesday, a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces said something to which more people should pay attention. Quote, we are preparing for the next stages of war, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht told reporters. We haven't said what that will be. Everyone's talking about the ground offensive. It might be something different. Well, what is the something different that he's referring to? Joel's comment is, I believe the most likely scenario is that Netanyahu and his war cabinet are actively considering launching a massive uh, preemptive strike on Iran. For almost a half century, the Islamic Republic of Iran has been launching one terrorist attack after another against the United States, against Israel, against our Arab allies in the region, and against Jews and Christians all over the world. Yet how often has the Iranian regime ever paid a serious military price? The answer, almost never. Now the mullahs are feverishly racing to build fully operational nuclear weapons. They're already at 84% enrichment of uranium. That's almost 90 to 95% military-grade enrichment. For 15 years or more, Netanyahu has been warning the world that they must find a way to neutralize the Iran nuclear threat, or Israel might have to launch a preemptive military strike. Uh, Joel writes, I've written novels and nonfiction books about such a scenario, but it's never happened. Now suddenly, tragically, Israel has a pretext. We all know that Iran funds, trains, and arms Hamas. That means that Iran is just as guilty of the slaughter of more than 1,400 Israelis as Hamas is. That means the Supreme Leader is just as culpable for killing more Jews in 14 days than any other time since the Holocaust. We also know that Hezbollah, Iran's proxy terror army in Lebanon, with its 200,000 missiles, all aimed at Israel is itching to join the fight. The Iranian leadership has publicly threatened that when Israel launches its ground invasion of Gaza, Tehran will escalate this war. 
Iran Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Badalihan said this uh, week, if the Zionist aggressions do not stop, the hands of all party in the region are on the trigger. That's why I'm certain, Joel Rosenberg writes, that Netanyahu and his war cabinet, including current defense minister Yoav Gallant, Benny Gantz, Israel's former defense minister and former IDF chief of staff, strategic affairs minister Ron Dermer, and Gadi Eisenkot, former IDF chief of staff, are actively discussing the possibility of launching a preemptive and massive strike against Iran and assassinating Iran's leaders soon, possibly before the IDF goes into Gaza. Why not cut off the head of the snake first, especially if Israel is already going to be in a two-front war with Hamas and Hezbollah in the coming days? Put another way, what is the point of leaving the Iranian regime and nuclear program alone when we're already going to war with two of Iran's terror proxies. That's why I believe uh, Netanyahu and his team are actively discussing this prospect with President Biden and his team, including the Secretaries of State and Defense, along with the CENTCOM commander who was in Israel this week. This could be why Biden moved two aircraft carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean this week. Uh, To add to this, a a nuclear uh, capacity uh, American submarine was photographed leaving its dock in Scotland and heading uh, in the direction of the eastern Mediterranean even today. Uh, he said, true, Biden doesn't want a regional war, but I believe Biden and his inner circle were truly and viscerally horrified by the slaughter of Jews that Hamas committed. They know the time is short. They know that if Iran isn't stopped soon, they will get the bomb and then all hell will break loose. Mm-hmm. They also know the American people will never forgive the Democrats if they allow Tehran to build nuclear weapons that can not only an- annihilate Israel, but obliterate the United States as well. Uh, on his website, uh, Joel has a 21-minute YouTube video where he goes into more details on this. So uh, you can go to All Israel News on uh, YouTube. You can look up Joel Rosenberg and uh, find that video and watch it at your leisure. But he ends with these remarks. I share the fears of Jordan's King Abdullah II, who said this week, the region is moving, quote, to the verge of the abyss. Joel writes, my family and I live in Jerusalem. We know that we and our friends and neighbors could be killed in such a war, but what choice do we have? Israel is certainly in its darkest hour since the prophetic rebirth of the country, but the slaughter we've experienced is nothing compared to the nuclear holocaust we will suffer if the terror masters in Tehran build and use the bomb. We may have come to the point of no return. God have mercy on us all. Now he offers this caveat. To be clear, I have no inside information as to what Netanyahu and his advisors are saying behind closed door. This is a news analysis based on open source reporting. You know, there's a couple of things that uh, I think might uh, point in the direction of Iran losing its uh, almost completed nuclear capacity. One of them is found in uh, boy, a passage in the book of Ezekiel that certainly has gained a lot of attention. Ezekiel 38 and 39, the famous Gog and Magog invasion of Israel that is described there. Uh, the uh, scripture talks about how uh, God says to Gog, the leader of the land of Magog, which, by the way, has been identified by Herodotus and Josephus as the place where the modern Russian people now live. It says, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields. 
all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togerma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Now notice Persia, or modern Iran, is mentioned as being with this invading army, not leading this invading army. They are an ally, but they certainly are not the ones that are, say, uh, manning the point, if you will. Uh, Russia seems to be the one that is leading this. Now, Russia mm. seems to be dragged into this in an unwilling way, hooks in the jaws of its leader. But, uh, you know, the, the when I read this passage, it tells me something. If Iran got the bomb and Iran's uh, belief in the 12th imam coming on the scene at the height of a global war uh, is, is true, why in the world would they hesitate to use that on Israel? Why in the world would they hesitate to use it in some maybe terroristic capacity against the United States? Why are they investing so much of their uh, time, effort, attention, and material wealth in developing intercontinental ballistic missile technology if they don't have these kind of ambitions involved here? Mm. Uh, I've always had a sneaky feeling, looking at Ezekiel 38, that Iran is going to somehow survive a conflict with Israel, but be drastically weakened hmm. so that they won't be leading the charge. They will be at the side of the leaders of this invasion, but not leading it. And so... So diminished, uh, but not demolished. Right. So when we see this, uh, this kind of speculation going on, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, a couple of mysteries. Number one, what's Israel waiting for? Well, now we have two... U.S. carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean. That's a significant amount of firepower. A nuclear submarine is leaving Scotland to join this task force. Sounds like uh, things mean business in that neck of the woods. A number of uh, war games have been conducted with Israel and the United States cooperating together to simulate what an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities would look like. The United States, and again, to a lesser extent, Israel, have the technology through bunker-busting bombs and so forth to be able to take out even some of the most uh, heavily shielded parts of Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, when we, we ask the question, okay, what's the, what's the end game? What are, the, what are they waiting for? Good possibility could be to either get the yay or final nay from the United States about this move to take out Iran's nuclear facilities, which answers another question, potentially. You know, what's the end game here? Israel comes in and says, say, takes out uh, Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip. Israel doesn't want to reoccupy Gaza. They don't want to uh, get into that nightmare again. You know, it would just be, you know, uh, an example of disproportionate warfare and snipers and terrorism, uh, you know, because they're not going to be able to kill every single Hamas fighter. They're going to go underground and, mm -hmm. and make life miserable. So, so what's the end game here? It's not Israel occupying Gaza. It certainly isn't uh, the uh, Palestinians in Gaza going to Egypt. Egypt's uh, President al-Sisi has said that if uh, the Palestinians are sent to Egypt, Egypt will declare war on Israel. That's how serious they are. Jordan doesn't want them. Saudi Arabia doesn't want them. Uh, you know, again, the Palestinian Authority 
doesn't want them because it's going to mm. throw them out, off, off of power. So what's the end game here? How can you remove this threat or greatly diminish this threat? The only way you can do that is, as Joel uses the analogy here, cutting off the head of the snake. The uh, real one. Defanging <laughs> the Iranians so that they can no longer supply missiles, can no longer supply training, can no longer supply uh, materiel, uh, can no longer supply uh, other terrorist uh, offshoots uh, to be able to conduct a proxy war against Israel. And that's really what this has been for the better part of the last 15 years. It's been a proxy war between Iran and Israel. Well, this weekend, uh, the gloves very well may come off. Uh, but uh, again, speculation, we don't know this for sure, but I think it's really interesting, especially in light of what we see in Ezekiel chapter 38, that Iran appears greatly diminished in the role of this last day's invasion, not dissuaded, still wants to attack Israel, still wants to wipe them out, but can only do so with Russian leadership. Hmm. So we may be seeing the pieces of that puzzle come together. Wow. It's quite profound to see <clears throat> biblical prophecy unfold before your very eyes. Yeah, well, quite possibly. Again, mm -hmm. the most important thing is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray uh, for the Israeli people. And as we've mentioned, uh, just to be praying for an incredible opening of the eyes of the Muslim mm -hmm. people to be able to understand who the true and living God is in mm -hmm. these times, to take the uh, sword of Muhammad out of their hand and to replace it with the love of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. Amen to that. Speaking of, uh, any, anything you want to add to that, Sean? Uh, speaking of uh, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, we had a question come in, uh, I think on um, uh this was from our website. He said, uh, follow up, if we pray for the peace of Israel, will God answer that prayer and give us another 300 years of peace? And if we pray for a revival, will more people get saved? I've heard this before, thanks. No, 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 no. When we're praying for <laughs> no, no, the no, peace no. of Jerusalem, <laughs> we're not saying, you know, to God, hey God, could you cause a cessation of conflict, a little extended warranty on this living hell we call earth? And then God's gonna be in heaven going, when I think of that, okay, I'll delay the end times. No, when we say we want the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying in line with the scripture that states emphatically that Israel will not know peace until the Prince of Peace returns, that they will see the, uh, the one whom they pierced and mourn for him as of, uh, what was the passion? As Zachariah. one mourns for his only, uh, an only son. Yeah, yeah. Um, wanted to get the adverbs right. But yeah. the, the point being made is just that. When we pray in line with Scripture, we're asking for it to be fulfilled. So when people take the prosperity gospel Gnostic heresy twist and say that we can twist God's arm and influence our quote-unquote divine prerogatives to supersede the purposes of God, we've missed the whole point of what prayer is all about. Prayer isn't coming to God and saying, my will be done. It's coming to God with our will and saying, fix this, because it's not in a line with yours. It's actual, it's uh, aligning your will with God's. So, for example, when I'm talking with someone in a, not necessarily fractured, but certainly a 
difficult conversation in a relationship, the first and most important thing to do is to come around to their way of thinking. And if, of course, we discover along the way that the other person was wrong, hopefully they're willing to do the same. Since the latter is never the case with God, we always come to him with the attitude of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1. I'll wait to be corrected here because there's something I'm missing, right? <laughs> right? And, and that was the whole point of that book. So when we come to God asking for peace, it's not asking to delay the rapture. It's not asking to delay or prevent war. It's not even necessarily to stop conflict in general. What we're saying when we ask for the peace of Jerusalem is for Christ to return. If you want to substitute Lord, bring peace to Jerusalem. In one word, it would be Maranatha, because you're saying the same thing. So note that point. The purpose of prayer isn't my will be done. It's God align your will with mine. Give me your desire in this situation. So I'm set up for success, because that was gonna, that's what was going to happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, the other side of the question is, could uh, Jesus delay his coming for 300 years? Sure. No man knows the day or the hour. Now, do I think that's likely? No, uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, Israel is back in the land. Uh, number two, the uh, last day's main, major players uh, that the Bible uh, predicts are rapidly coming on the scene and hitting their marks on the stage. Uh, you know, uh, as uh, Joel Rosenberg famously says, in light of what's going on in Israel and uh, what's happening in the world, if you're planning a major sin in your life, I'd definitely put it off. Uh, because Jesus could come at any moment. But that's our attitude as, as Christians. It's significant for us to study prophecy. Jesus did say, when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your salvation draws near. We should be aware of what's happening. We should be aware of major prophetic events uh, for no other reason, uh, not to give way to the despair that so many people have in this world. Mm -hmm. There's so many people who are like, well, what's the point of going to work? What's the point of, of having children? What's the point of, of going on life? When all this crazy stuff is going on, the world's falling apart, we're all gonna, you know, World War III is gonna come. Well, we know how it turns out. We know who wins. God wins in the end. Will things get dark? before the, the return of Jesus? Absolutely. But we as believers in Christ have another hope. It's the hope we call the blessed hope, that Jesus will come before this seven-year period of hell on earth that's going to break out and snatch us up and be in his presence before the storm, the event called the rapture. So we as believers in, in Jesus have more reason for optimism than anyone else. What's this world coming to? We're often asked, my simple answer is an end, at least under current management. I mean, we are not seeing things getting better. We're seeing things getting a lot, lot worse, and the stakes are getting higher and higher. But we know from these key issues in the Scripture that uh, I believe we're in the ballpark. Like I said, could be wrong. Jesus could come uh, in another 300 years. But as I often say to people at Calvary Christian Fellowship, uh, you know, whether he comes in 300 years or not, that's irrelevant to me. Because, you know, again, I'm 65 years old. Say I live to be 95. You know what that tells me? It tells me that within 30 years, I can take one truth to the bank. I'm going to see Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because he's either coming back for me at the rapture, or I'm going to him through the valley of the shadow of death. But either way, I'm going to end up mm -hmm. in the exact same place 
and the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. So I've got something to be excited about. I've got something to look forward to. It's bittersweet because we see these things and it should motivate us. Mm -hmm. Just like that, that question, why in the world would you come halfway around the world to do something nice for us? Well, the reason you went halfway around the world was because you wanted to share the love of Jesus Christ with people. You went halfway around the world Boy, what a different world it would be if we could be motivated to go halfway around the block yeah. uh, to share the, the love of Jesus. And there are opportunities to do that all the time. I can't think of anything I would rather be found doing when Jesus comes back again than uh, to be communicating his love to someone who desperately needs to hear it. Mm. Uh, I think that greatly enhances my chances of hearing him say, well done, good and faithful mm. servant, instead of maybe just well said, good and faithful servant. <laughs> There's a big difference. Mm. Yeah, and it's the same when we pray for revival. It's not as if we hadn't prayed, the Holy Spirit wasn't doing a work in individual hearts and lives. If you want revival to be hastened, then be a part of it. Ask God to bring people into your life right. where you can be a model of the heart of God. And while you're at it, pray for the heart of God so that you can have something to offer when you meet said people. But the idea that, well, I said it to God, therefore he has to do it, is about as rational as, uh, you know, the kid pouting at Target because mom didn't buy them the, you know, gender transitioned uh, swimsuit or whatever they're selling now. The point being made is this, talk <laughs> so to... It's not that. <laughs> talk to God, not to say, gimme, but what can I do? What can I do to be a part of what you're already doing and we're going to do? Because that's the point of joy, hope fulfilled. Yeah. If you set your hope <clears throat> in what's going to be fulfilled, God's your best bet. Hmm. Well, speaking of gimme, gimme, there seems to be a theme in our questions today. Uh, <laughs> gimme, gimme? <laughs> yeah. uh, Troy was, I guess, having a conversation with his grandfather, and he kind of followed up, and he said that his grandfather said, Jesus died at 33 so that we could live to 103. Jesus was sick so that we could be healthy, poor so that we could be rich. And Troy wants to know, why do people teach this? Yeah, it's a spin on the old question, you know, by his stripes we are healed. Is that a confession that we can make to heal all diseases and so forth? Um, for those of you who aren't in on the joke, the previous question that led up to this is this guy's grandfather holds a uh, false view of Scripture and God that essentially centers around, well, when you become a Christian, you are immune to the effects of the fall. You don't get sick, you don't, you know, age, you'll live to be a hundred, because that's just the way that it is. And when we answered this question last, uh, my father just gave that little note at the end, well, Jesus died at 30, and his argument was, if you die at 30, you were a sinner. So he's not obviously changing his view based on Scripture, he's twisting Scripture to fit back into his view. Jesus died because we can live to be a hundred now. What are the problems with that? Well, you know, again, uh, you mentioned uh, one of those passages that's often cited in that kind of doctrine, that uh, Jesus' death on the cross uh, accomplished physical healing for us in the same way that it accomplished forgiveness of sins for mm -hmm. us, that it was, this is given to us, uh, by faith we can receive it, we are going to be just as, as much a picture of perfect health as we are perfectly forgiven by Christ's death on the cross. Well, that is not what the scripture has to say. And oftentimes people who say that, uh, that uh, perfect healing was a part of the atonement uh, will point to uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, where it says, uh, by his stripes uh, we are healed. Well, you know, again, uh, we are told uh, a little insight 
into all of this. What was the meaning of that passage? Well, 1 Peter chapter uh, 2 and verse 21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving it as an example, you should follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins, his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, Sean, what is the context of the healing that is being referred to there? Is it uh, God making sure I never get the sniffles again? Well, on top of sniffles not having anything to do with that passage, he's in the middle of a conversation about physical persecution. So and, that's yeah, personal suffering, yeah. But no, he's talking about the salvation of your souls, your spiritual healing, your state of death before God has been raised to new life in Christ. So to literally take this and flip it on its head wouldn't only be false teaching, it would be literally blasphemous to say that God is obligated to preserve something that not only his word said we have no promise of, but to demand of God something contrary to his nature and that his spiritual priority, his spiritual healing, our salvation is a lesser concern to him than the fact we are uncomfortable, that yeah. we are unhappy. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, People say, well, do you think there's healing in the atonement? That's usually how the question is posed. Mm -hmm. And I would say absolutely there is. But the big question is, when is it going to happen? When we see the Lord face to face, when we receive our glorified bodies, uh, we're not going to have to worry about things like sin and suffering and death. I mean, I love what Revelation 21 says about this. Uh, in verse 3, we are told, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Well, how is that accomplished? By Jesus dying on the cross for us. When we are glorified, in God's presence, we're going to be completely, absolutely, and totally healed. Between now and then, physical malady is going to be an issue that we have to deal with. Does that mean that God doesn't heal? No, God does heal. Does it mean that we can demand God to heal in every circumstance and situation because it's somehow part of the atonement? No. As Jesus sought the Lord's strength when he was in a case where he was literally sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, how did he pray? He said, Father, if it be possible, may this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, we are to ask for healing. We are to ask God for good and perfect gifts, but we are to trust that he has a good and perfect will as he ministers those gifts. To be able to say, well, no, I got this principle. I put my, my faith in this principle here rather than the person that makes the principle valid, that's where we get into trouble, I think. Yeah, and that's why we're so serious about this. When we talk to people who are, A, either holding God to promises that he never made, they're either being set up for disappointment, or worse, they're going to share those promises that God never made as if they were promises and set up others to stumble in their faith as well. You're becoming false teachers, promoting false doctrine. We don't want that. There's people who are like, oh, well, he's a strong believer. Yeah, believer in what? We want to make sure that the real Jesus is the one saving you because a fake Jesus isn't going to be there on Judgment Day. Yeah, mm. exactly. I remember I, on the side would take 
some time to do a little bit of paranormal investigating, and especially when it came into the church. And I remember thinking, well, if God's really healing people, then that, uh, there ought to be evidence for that. And if it's a promise that is a part of redemption, then we ought to have some evidence for Everyone that. Everyone who's redeemed <laughs> should be healed. Yeah. So I was going to a lot of the Word of Faith in some of the churches that were really into the holy laughter and some of the manifestations that were happening in the 90s. And so I was really attending all these different churches. And I remember a pastor preaching on Isaiah 53, and he said, See, by his stripes we are healed. And I thought, well, when you read it, it says he took up our infirmities. But then he says then he was broken for our sin. And in the context, he's referring to, and I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, the by your stripes are healed. He's really referring to the sin part. But in the Gospel of Mark, I remember, there's a passage that says he did the healings to fulfill, and then it refers to Isaiah. Right. And the pastor is preaching this, and, and I'm thinking the argument in my mind. I go, but this, the Gospel says that he healed to fulfill that aspect of Isaiah 53. And he goes, but Jesus' ministry didn't stop it, that part in the Gospel of Mark. So why would it say that here? And I thought, that's not what it means to say that this was to fulfill. It meant that his earthly ministry was there, not the chapter of that chapter in the Gospel of Mark. So I thought it yeah. was kind of really strange how they, they really had to work hard to teach that to be saved is the same to be healed in terms of what faith, what faith it takes to be saved. Just trust in Christ and you should have health and wealth and everything should go well for you and if you don't it's because you have a lack of faith yeah well again if and and, and you know there's the cessationist argument that says that there is no gift of healing anymore uh i think that's taking it a bit too far uh the apostle paul certainly had the gift of healing even raised a guy who fell asleep in one of his sermons from the dead at one point a fellow named eutychus uh but uh he also said to timothy uh, you know, no longer drink water only, but have a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Mm. So here's a guy that was used to raise people from the dead, but he's saying to Timothy, well, just use the standard operating remedy that the culture offers and uh, don't be afraid to use wine for that purpose. It could probably do you some good. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we don't want to go so far on one side that you know we're demanding and we're calling our shots with god and saying you have to heal and you have to do it on my timing according to my wisdom and my ways uh but on the other side of the coin we don't want to exclude the fact that god mm -hmm. does work supernaturally as he wills to bring glory to himself through among other things physical healing mm -hmm. physical healings that cannot be explained in any scientific way and i'm not talking about psychosomatic things mm -hmm. or someone just getting so amped up that uh you know they're able to stand up for a couple of minutes and then once the cameras are off they fall over i'm talking about the kind of healing say that my dad had uh from lymphoma cancer where his oncologist said well here's here's the uh, uh the scan that shows your adrenal gland 80 percent compromised here's the one we took on friday there's not even a trace there's not a scar i have no scientific explanation mm -hmm. so are you a religious man well that was one of the things that led my dad to the lord i would say that is not just uh, physical healing but that was physical healing in the best sense of the term mm -hmm. it glorified god and it led my dad to christ mm -hmm. uh, so i wouldn't exclude the possibility that these sort of things right. happen and uh, for those who say well the gift of healing was the disciples could heal anytime they wanted or on demand that doesn't stand up to scriptural muster either. Mm -hmm. uh, they healed as sometimes they saw someone had faith to be healed. They healed mm -hmm. according to God's will and according to the way. And sometimes 
they weren't healed. Hence, Paul talking about uh, the uh, the fact that he had a thorn in the flesh. He asked three times for God to remove it, and God said, "No, my grace is sufficient for you." Didn't that happen with Jesus as well? Is there a passage that talks about how there wasn't enough faith in that area that Jesus really didn't heal very many people? Yeah, well, in his hometown, but that was in order to when miracles are performed, they're verifying his word. Mm-hmm. So if they aren't believing his word, then using signs to verify what they projected anyway would serve no purpose. Okay. He did heal a few sick and lame people, but that was out of compassion, not the purpose that miracles are always performed, which is why you read the book of Acts. The book covers a narrative of about, what, 30-something years, and there's about 12 to 14 miracles in the whole book. So on average, you have a miracle every other year or so, Mm. which by modern reckoning is about right. (laughs) We're we're just making sure that that's understood. The reason we come to Jesus isn't so that he entertains us, that he performs miracles for us. It's that we have him. That's what heaven's all about. Great. Good balance, good doctrine, good theology. Robert Block wants to know, uh, is from Revelation 9 about the 200 million numbered army? From studying through Revelation from a Bible teacher named Stephen Armstrong from Verse by Verse Ministries who passed away, I tend to bend towards this, his take on that 200 million army as being a demonic army Mm -hmm. and not an actual man army. Uh, And then he goes on to describe... um, that this army is armed with fire, smoke, brimstone, something that a human does not emit. Uh, we can't take the text translating this army being machines or tanks, seeing as the text doesn't say that. So yeah. this has to be a demonic horde. Uh, so what do you think, Sean? Do you think that uh, this 200 million man army is maybe a, a demon-possessed or literally a demonic army? Or what's Yeah, your take uh, on that? for those who don't dismiss the passage on principle, there's generally two views on this event and phenomena, uh, that these are either the entities, the spiritual entities that follow the four angels that were bound at the river Euphrates, and the passage says they were released and prepared for that day and hour and month and year to kill a third of mankind. Now, what's interesting about that, apart from just the implications, is the very interesting aspect of these angels being in the company of 200 million Horsemen. Now, people who would take the view that these demons are adversarial spirits, angels literally means messenger, it's not necessarily a spiritual creature, but we can tell in this. Um, the fallout of this judgment is a 200 million strong army that, if you know where the Euphrates River is, literally right next door, it's the most populated country on the planet, so you could probably tell where the casualties are. But the point being made is that... Um, as this army is unleashed, they're described with an interesting set and array of colors. Hyacinth blue, sulfur uh, yellow, and um, some sort of uh, red. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about that is what's interesting about most of the book of Revelation. It's a reference to something. And if you go to the book of Zechariah, there was another account of horsemen that were reporting on things that were taking place on the earth. And while these are described as horsemen, the passage emphatically declared that these are entities sent out by God to spy out things from the spiritual world. So in taking a consistent picture, not just with the word horsemen, but the colors are the are all the same, except right. for the white ones. Right. These entities go out and are given authority to kill mankind with sulfur and brimstone and snakes from their tails and so forth. Now, people look at this and go, that seems just a little bit too bizarre to me. Well, if that's a problem for you, that's the second half of a chapter that started with 
other chimeric entities, demonic locusts that will be tormenting mankind for 42 months. Or no, uh, for a couple months, um, five months, I think it was. Now, what's interesting about those entities is that they are also likewise not the sort of things that we could appropriately apply to human technology, which is the second view. That, oh, these are describing helicopters. Well, I don't see helicopters uh, hurting people, but causing them with the inability to die. What do their, like, miniguns have little... Uh, like pain uh, syringes that make you suffer for I mean, five months. I mean, to be fair, they might say they were using chemical or biological weapons that would do that, but that doesn't seem to be the case. No, it no. will be an incapability of dying during this time period. There's some influence, and it notes their place of origin is from the bottomless pit or the abyss, and that they have an angel over them as well who's named Apollyon, which means destroyer. Mm. So with these four angels, what I see is a 300% increase of severity, only this time there's no restraint. They can just kill up to a certain point. Now, that's the way that I handle it because we at Calvary Christian Fellowship take a very plain view, a futurist view, a premillennial view. We take these passages just to mean what they say, and where unfamiliar terms are used, we assume that it's referencing something that's already been explained before. Otherwise, it would immediately go on to be. In, in this case, I would use Zachariah as a hermeneutic. You see spiritual entities like the horsemen in Zechariah following the exact same pattern of appearance that these are. And Zechariah takes those things to be angelic creatures. So I think these are demonic as well. But when it comes to the different views, like 80% of most things in the study of the end times, it is a negotiable thing. I can, in fact, hear out arguments against my view, and it would not be a salvation issue. Just keep in mind references, and how it was explained before should bear an authority on what it's being applied to, unless you're told otherwise. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Speaking of, well, I guess that's all the time yeah. we have today. <laughs> uh, so. I, I try to close it out. Well, Robert, it looks like Sean agrees with you, so that's a good thing. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the program. Have a great weekend. We'll be here again on Monday. Same place, same time. Uh, may the Lord be with you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.